report on, on the social and public service impacts of uh, international migration aimed to fill two, two knowledge gaps. One was looking at the actual impact of migration on different local areas, um, different compositional impacts of migrants, because quite often we talk about migration as a whole and its impact on the UK, but not enough is done at understanding the differential impacts in different areas. So I spent quite a bit of time this morning talking about that. And then we also tried, um, perhaps a little less successfully, to look at the different impacts that different types of migrants have on the UK as well, and I'll talk a bit about that later. The detailed statistical analysis that's in this report, um, it is quite complicated. It was actually done by a colleague of, of mine, Kitty Limpopopulu, um, who kind of did a lot of the statistical work. Um, essentially, it was based on a wide range of data, um, a lot of exploratory data analysis, correlation analysis, um, to look at different variables and, and the power that they would have in explaining different impacts of migration. We did something called principal components analysis to kind of... Um, work out the most important variables to use because obviously a lot of variables when you look at migration and like anything else can be interrelated um, so we try to get the most important ones and then we use something called cluster analysis essentially to look at local authorities um, the different uh, composition of those local authorities the different um, uh, socio-demographic characteristics and so on and so forth and, and essentially looking at what cluster analysis does um, for those of you who aren't technically mind essentially minimise the differences between different types of local authorities so you can group them um, and that's essentially what we did, and we ended up with 12 clusters. Um, different people will do the same thing using very similar techniques and come up with different clusters. So a lot of the process was also looking um, rationally at the clusters we ended up at and seeing, well, did they make sense, did they fit the kind of model um, that made sense <coughs> and helped us understand the world as we see it. Um, so hopefully the results we came up with do actually make some sense um, to people. The data we looked at came from a range of different providers. The Office of National Statistics were a big provider. We used an awful lot of ONS data in this work. Um, some examples on the screen. Um, things like short-term, long-term migrant workers, rates per resident population and so on. We also used data from DWP, Department for Work and Pensions, um, data from the Home Office, DEFRA, and um, Umbrella ONS as well. In the end, we came down to 20 key variables that we used in the cluster analysis. We started off with, I think, over 100 data sets. What that produced, the cluster analysis, was essentially, um, as I said, 12 groups of local authorities across, across England and Wales. There were seven clusters which we termed high migration clusters. That means they were well above the national average. In fact, the definition was there was one or more migration variable with a rate above the national average greater than 0.5 standard deviations above the mean. So just above average um, in terms of their experience of migration. Those seven clusters accounted for 127 local authorities, um, which is about, well, it's just over a third of all local authorities, but actually, because they include some of the bigger urban local authorities, as you'd expect, that's around half of the population in England and Wales. And one of the headlines from this analysis was that half the population of England and Wales live in areas which could be, could be considered as high-migration areas, areas that have experienced a lot of migration over the last five to ten years. There were three moderate migration clusters... Um, which also cover about a third of local authorities um, and around 30% of the population, and then two which we termed low migration, which cover about 20% of the population these days. Um, and low migration clusters are those that are essentially below the national average, more than 0.5 standard deviations below the mean on the key migration indicators. Starting with the high population, the high migration clusters, essentially these are the seven clusters in that group together account for 50% of the population. They're quite wide, 
wide-ranging, as you can see. They include, as you would expect, some of the really big urban conurbations, super diverse London, um, places like Brent, Ealing, Hackney, um, cosmopolitan London, as we termed it, and some periphery areas. Oxford obviously isn't in London, Camden, Wandsworth are. London suburban satellite towns, places like Croydon, Enfield and Harrow. I mean, obviously, if you know London, you know these places, you know and recognise that these have experienced a lot of migration. Um, diverse conurbation centres, obviously some of the big cities like Bradford and Birmingham. Um, high turnover towns, some of the big student towns, places like Cheltenham, um, Exeter, um, some asylum dispersed areas, and then the migrant worker towns and countryside, which is a very interesting group, and I'll come back to that in a moment. These are areas which experienced an awful lot of migration over the last decade, but hadn't done previously, and it's, it's quite a different experience for them. Just thinking about the, uh, just one of these clusters in the high migration group, um, diverse conurbation centres. Um, that map, if you can see the, the shaded areas, just tells you where they are. These are typically areas with high rates of African and Asian migration, um, quite a lot of child and, and student migration. Um, high proportion of supported asylum seekers. They also have quite high levels of worklessness and a high proportion of social housing. I'll show you um, how we kind of come up with these kind of typologies. We use something called Z-scores, um, which is essentially a statistical technique looking at how far away a particular cluster group is from the national average on some of these scores. So when you see charts like this in the report, and I'll show you a few of these, essentially... The bars to the right show how a particular cluster group on average is above the national average, and um, bars going to the left suggest that it's, it's below average. So on this, this particular group, diverse conurbation centres, as you'd expect, these are not very rural places. But they're above average on pretty much all of the key variables that we were looking at in most other respects. Not, not so many older people, um, not quite so much manufacturing as, as uh, the average of the UK, but in all other respects. Um, you know, very much um, large numbers, large volumes of migrants, but also um, lots of other things like larger, you know, more, more on average social renting um, and things like that, and private renting and so on and so forth. You can see, hopefully, some of those indicators. But those are the super, the, the, the diverse conurbation centres. Um, let's just come back to that, that seventh group within the high migration clusters. 5% of the population live in what we call migrant worker towns and countryside. These are areas that have had high levels of migration, um, particularly from the EU accession countries. And you can see this in the census data that's published um, over the last year. I mean, the, the areas, the local areas that have had the biggest population change over the last decade, um, very much, very heavily concentrated in London, actually, I think probably most of the top 20 in London. But when you go outside the top 20, you start hitting areas like this, like places like Boston, um, for example, and Finland. Um, and this is what makes them different. They are more rural areas, which is unusual. Again, you know, we think of migration um, coming to jobs in the cities, um, but it's also going to a lot of more rural areas now. These areas are seeing a lot more EU accession migrants, a lot of the big increase in migration post-2004 accession, a lot of people from Eastern Europe. Some of the places they are coming to work are towns like this. They're also towns where above average um, numbers of elderly people, for example, um, not so many people of sort of childbearing age. It's kind of interesting. You think of, you know, essentially towns with an older population experiencing a large influx of new people who actually don't speak the language and from different cultures. Um, this is some of the reasons why actually it's towns like these where you get a lot of anxiety and discomfort about changes in migration. 
and uh, above average numbers of uh, migrant students and uh, you know slightly less turnover than, than other places despite all these factors and just to emphasise, Cluster 7, these, these are the uh, local authorities that are in Cluster 7. They're not normally local authorities one associates with migration. Um, but we ought to nowadays. And I think the census results back me up in that, in that feeling. Um, some of the, it's a pretty diverse group. Not all of these places are experiencing a lot of migration. I should be clear about that. It was probably the most, one of the most diverse clusters, probably the most diverse cluster in some respects in, in the research. But some of these areas, places like Boston, Corby, Fenland, South Holland, um, Lincolnshire, um, are registering very, very high in terms of population change, and a lot of, and a lot of that population change is driven by migration. Let's just move on to uh, some of the middle group. 30% of the population um, are living in what we term mi moderate migration clusters, and these comprise rural and coastal retirement age areas, um, some of the new large freestanding commuter towns, just some examples there, and some prosperous small towns. Just looking at one of these groups, prosperous small towns, which account for 12% of the overall population in England and Wales. That's a map showing where they are. I think a lot of people think of this as typical England, essentially. You know, it's, it's kind of southeastern. They're broadly popular, prosperous areas, relatively low levels of workers. fewer people in social housing. But, you know, the size of migrant population now is pretty close to, to the average. I mean, there are areas that are experiencing migration like um, a lot of other areas in the country. And just to show you the Z-scores, just to emphasise some of those differences, lower worklessness by far than average, lower um, social renting, um, public housing and so on, uh, slightly lower manufacturing as well, slightly higher um, sense of ruralness, Quite a lot of pre-existing migrants, but not very many new migrants. Um, not so many accession migrants or other, other new migrants. Um, these are typically areas people are coming, you know, and you can look at this picture and see that people who are coming from all sorts of backgrounds, um, essentially to, you know, get a job, have a family life, probably have a quiet life, is my impression. You know, this is not the kind of vibrant, diverse cities, but these are, you know, these are places with large numbers of people, um, and they are quite often seen as kind of typical England, if you like. And there's quite a high degree of turnover in these places as well, I mean, as you'd expect from sort of satellites of, of London, as most of them are. Um, and then the low migration clusters. Uh, around 20% of the population live in low migration clusters, what we termed low migration, um, roughly equally split between the old industrial and manufacturing towns and then um, some of the smaller towns and rural areas around the country. And you'll get a feel for the way the data works now. Um, significant numbers of people in these sorts of areas um, not experiencing much migration um, at all. Here's one group, the industrial, the industrial manufacturing towns, um, mainly ex-industrial manufacturing and mining towns. Um, there's a high level of worklessness in these sorts of places, so perhaps it's not that surprising. Migrants don't um, look to go there. There aren't that many jobs to be had. Um, and if you look at the Z-scores... Very different picture from some of the other groups. A lot less migration, less private renting, less migrant-dense industries, more manufacturing, more social renting, public housing, more worklessness. Um, you know, if you think of these the kind of traditional ex-industrial, ex-mining towns, that's what we're talking about here. And again, you know, significant numbers of people living in these sorts of areas, but they're not seeing as much migration. That's kind of the picture that we um, presented in the statistics. Uh, broadly speaking. And what we were trying to do is to give, probably for the first time that I've seen at least, a kind of very 
wide-ranging look at, um, at England and Wales and the different, uh, differential impacts that migration has had on different parts of the country. Because traditionally, you know, we tend to look at national statistics, um, the national population, looking at the effects that this thing called immigration um, has on the country as a whole. And that's not really very appropriate. It doesn't help us understand different sorts of you know, emotional responses and actual responses and socioeconomic responses that different local areas will have to these sorts of changes. We also try to look at different types of migrants um, and the impacts they might have. And um, this slide, I've actually got these two slides the wrong way around, but I'll, I'll start with this one and come back to the other one. I mean, essentially, to cut to the quick, um, what the work showed us was essentially legitimate students and um, skilled workers are not like to have much impact. They also have lowest impacts. Um, there were mixed impacts from those skilled migrant workers, and we could come back to that in discussion, maybe. Um, and some of the highest impacts in terms of the demands placed on public services are more likely to come from people like asylum seekers and refugees. Um, and we know anyone who's worked with these groups understand they often come with um, quite serious you know, health problems and quite often language problems and other, other integration problems that do need um, extra effort uh, to deal with. Important point, of course, is that um, the impact that migrants have is not just about the impact that migrants themselves have and the characteristics they bring with them. Um, it's also about local area characteristics and the history of migration, their experiences, economic conditions, and so on and so forth. So I mentioned, I mean, some of that cluster seven group, Boston, for example, um, where there were protests about some of the new migrants from Eastern Europe, Eastern Europe a few years ago. Um, you know, that's partly to do with the fact that they haven't experienced much migration in the past. It's a different sort of experience than, for example, a place like London. Um, where obviously we've experienced large numbers of migrants over many, many years. That look at the types, different types of migrants, um, I mean, it says here different types of migrants have different social and public service impacts. Is this motherhood and apple pie? I mean, of course it is. Um, it's obvious as soon as you start to think about it. But again, a lot of the discussion is about this thing called migrants and migration in the round. We don't distinguish between different types of migrants very readily. Um, and people seem, you know, perhaps unwilling to do that in some respects. And I, that worries me a bit, because actually I don't, I don't think that's the way government thinks about migration, and it's not the way our government thinks about it, not the way, not the way actually that any government across the globe thinks about migration, um, in practical terms, in terms of immigration policy. So it's a little odd when we talk about it in academic terms in that sort of way. The researchers hoped to identify um, new sources of data about the impacts of migration. And to be blunt, we failed. We couldn't do that very readily. Those quite a lot of data about migration, um, but there's also some very significant data gaps. We knew about those gaps nationally, and we had the kind of hope that if we spoke to various local authorities that we might find at least some examples of different local areas, perhaps those local areas that had more experience with migration, actually doing some data collection that would actually provide more meaningful information. We didn't really come across any that we could use. Um, so in that sense, this part of research wasn't massively successful. What we ended up doing, however, was to actually start, well, to look at a softer form of research, looking at people's attitudes to different migrants, their views on different migrants and the impacts they may have. Um, we spoke to a number of local authorities and, and local authorities themselves, representatives of public services and those local authorities, and also some employers of migrants and those local authorities to get around a view of the different sorts of impacts that migrants were having in their local area. Um, we then used that information and knowledge to build into a questionnaire, which some of you in the room may well have completed. It's an online questionnaire targeted at people with a strong, primarily academic, not just academic, interest <coughs> in migration to try and tease out some of the views on the differences between different types of migrants and groups. And then we had a, an expert group sit around the table and talk about the results from that work um, and to draw some conclusions, which is what we report 
in the research. So essentially, um, we think this reports it's enabled a more considered understanding of the impacts of migration. I think that's primarily what it's aimed. Um, it's looking at migrants as a diverse group with different needs and impacts. Um, it is trying to counter that view that we can talk about immigration as one thing um, and trying to see it in just a richer, richer way. It's considered the impacts on the local rather than the national level. Um, again, a lot of the data we use through necessity, because that's what's available, is looking at migration nationally. But the impacts of migration vary enormously across the country. Um, this research tells you how they vary. Um, very little has prior to this done that. The census results are starting to do that, but again, massive information, very hard to interpret it. Um, it's very hard to digest it. Um, it needs some interpretation. This is one way of doing that. Actually, this analysis done prior to the census data being available. It's going to be possible for people to rework this um, and do it afresh using census data in the due course. So if there's anybody who's kind of into these sorts of stats and wants to do that, um, I'm delighted. Come talk to me afterwards. We, uh, we also um, wanted the research to try and recognise some genuine costs and benefits of migration. Again, some of the debates about migration can be very blunt. Um, a lot of it is, you know, very often unidirectional. You get people talking at each other rather than with each other. You get people saying, you know, immigration is good for these reasons, immigration is bad for these reasons. There's not really a conversation about, actually, it might be good and bad in lots of different ways. And actually, lots of things, um, you know, that we experience in public policy have positive and negative impacts. They have costs, they have benefits, and the point is to look at that in the round. Um, so again, this, this research is trying to present some of that picture. And we think the research will inform current debates about role migration can play. I think it is doing that. We think it provides the groundwork for further research to explore these differences. And again, if you want a typology for doing research on migration, you want a typology of different local areas, for example, to run surveys in or to go and talk to stakeholders, actually this gives you a pretty good model. And I keep seeing research at, on migration that, for example, is focused on London or maybe one other major city. And, you know, for me, this research says, actually, if you want to understand the migration that's actually been happening over the last 10 years, well, maybe you need to go to places like Boston, or Fenlands, or Lincolnshire, for example. Um, so it gives you a kind of a framework within which to design um, research studies as well. Um, and, you know, hopefully it will also enable the UK's response to migration to become better attuned to its innate diversity, I said that. And just to end on the main point, um, that I've tried to get across this morning is, you know, if you take one thing away from this presentation and this research, you know, make it this, you know, whenever you read about immigration and migration, whenever you hear about it, you know, just ask the question, what do they actually mean? What kind of immigration are they talking about? You know, because different types of migrants will have different types of impacts. I'll give you an example, I mean, it came up earlier this week, and we have read there was some research <coughs> produced on the impact of migrants on housing um, and housing costs and housing prices. Um, I haven't read the research, so I apologise if anybody has. I'm not trying to kind of criticise or, or compliment the research particularly. But it was interesting about the response to that. Of course, you've got the usual people on, on one hand saying this is, you know, maybe they're saying it's terrible, it's just reporting facts, but migration has a negative impact on house prices. Other people say, well, maybe migration actually, you know, helped prop up house prices in some areas. Um, maybe, you know, sorry, maybe it didn't, it meant that house prices didn't rise as fast as they would otherwise, and maybe this was a positive. I have no idea, actually, whether rising house prices or lowering house prices is a good or bad thing for these areas. Um, I think there's quite a lot of debate to be had about that. I have no real idea from the research about whether migration had any positive or negative impacts. It strikes me it's pretty obvious that a lot of migrants are attracted to a lot of areas with poorer housing, cheaper housing. They may initially reduce house prices. They may, if they're depending on the types of migrants, they may inflate them. Um, I'm pretty sure that, you know, 
rich Russians, for example, or um, people from um, some of the Middle Eastern countries got lots of money and probably inflating a lot of the housing market, part, different parts of the housing market in London. But I think you need a kind of more subtle approach to understanding some of these issues than perhaps we get in the normal sort of public debate, where again, it's about the effect that this thing called immigration has on this thing called the housing market, as if they're kind of, you know, one thing. Um, I don't think they are. So if you take one thing away from this presentation this morning, maybe.